And church, you can have a seat. If you have a Bible, will you grab and open to Exodus chapter 20? If you're new with us, I want to say welcome. My name is Sean, one of the pastors here. Great job, band. Thank you all very much. Um, we are, uh, if you're new, we've been walking through the book of Exodus for many, many, many weeks. And so we uh, have landed today. We find ourselves in the Ten Commandments, in the law. And so last week, I, uh, I actually just looked at uh, commandment number one. Uh, and so I kind of did myself a disservice because today I got to get through the rest of Exodus 20 to stay on track with our preaching calendar um, as Michael comes back to pick up next week. Um, and so we're going to be taking really a high level view. And we talked last week that if we got the first one sort of right, so to speak, that if we had have no other gods before the one true God, then all these other ones that we're going to talk about seem to fall into place a lot easier if we're not chasing after all these idols, if we're not running after all of these other things. And so we're going to do a bit of a survey here um, this morning. So we don't have time as much as I would like to dive into all of them. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the rest of Exodus 20. I'm going to read the first 21 verses to sort of uh, refresh us and to ground uh, our hearts and minds on God's word this morning on the Ten Commandments. Um, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him 
may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. A quick note, this could be another full another sermon, but I was struck with that very last statement right there. And Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There's a lot of thoughts about what that means. There's some contextual things here, but just on the surface level, I know that there may be someone in here that may be walking through some darkness. You may be walking through a difficult time. You may be walking through not wonder, wondering what's going on. Um, oftentimes we feel like in the darkness, God is a million miles away, but take hope that oftentimes it's in that very place that God speaks to you in his word. And so uh, lean into the Lord if you are in a place of darkness. Lean into the Lord if you are in a place where you are unsure of where he's leading. That's another thought for another day, but I was struck just with that very last one there. Now, last week, we, be, we began the Ten Commandments. We just took a look at the very first one, but at the very outset, and I'm going to remind us here again just to set the stage and set the framework uh, that the law came after grace. All right, so when we're looking at the law of God, when we're looking at the Ten Commandments, all of us have some different thoughts and feelings when we uh, approach the Ten Commandments, but I want us to not forget that at the very outset that the law came after grace. After grace, what do I mean? The law came after God had already set his love upon his people, right? He had already made a covenant with his people. He said, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. He had already shown them his faithfulness, his kindness, his salvation, his great and mighty works. He parted the Red Sea. He gathered his people to himself. He saved them from slavery and from certain death. Remember, the Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments begins this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He begins this chapter by saying, I'm your God. I chose you. I loved you and I saved you. This was before the law came. So the law, church, is given first and foremost out of God's love for his people. The law that God gives to his people to shape them and mold them and form them and show them more of who he is was first given out of his love and his grace and his kindness. So before God gives the law, he saves them first. That's what verse two is telling us in Exodus chapter 20. He saves his people out of slavery because he loves them. He put his love on them and he sets his law upon them to give his people whom he loves and whom he has already saved a framework to honor him and to honor one another. That's the 10 commandments. So the law, catch this, don't miss this as we walk through all of this. The law was never meant to be a way of salvation for God's people. Let me say that again. The law was never meant to be a way of salvation for God's people. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3.19. It should be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it quickly. Why then the law? Paul's, he's asking this question. He's going to answer his own question. Why the law then? A lot of us ask. Well, why give us all these Ten Commandments? What's, 
Why is it even there if he's already saved us? Why does he give us these rules? Why the law? He answers his own question. It was added because of transgressions, because of sin, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. What does that mean? It means that God's supreme purpose in dealing with you and I, in dealing with mankind, all the way back in Exodus chapter 20 and today with you and I, is to rid the world of sin through his redeemer. That's what he just said in Galatians. God's purpose in Exodus 20 in giving the law is to rid the world of sin and and they were to be longing for the redeemer to come. So what Paul says in Galatians is he ties a bow on it and that's the story of all of scripture. That's the story of our Bible. From Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of a redeemer to come. The very beginning of our Bible, the very creation story tells us Genesis 3.15, that there would be one that would come from the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head. There was a redeemer coming and he would fulfill and accomplish what we could never do on our own. So that was the theme that the whole Bible in the beginning of the story uh, was set out and set into motion. It was a story of redemption. It's the story of the promised seed to come. And the Bible and the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, restoration is this story of this coming to pass, of this redeemer that, that they were waiting on and that uh, we now worship uh, has come and will one day come again and that we would receive him by faith that did what we could not do. And God's purpose in dealing with men and women is, according to Galatians 319, and then going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of the Redeemer to come is to rid the world of sin through this promised one to come. But here's the problem. Um, We don't look for a Redeemer. God's people were not hoping for a Redeemer. God's people... uh, just wanted to go it their own way. They wanted a king like all the other nations have. Well, if you get down in the story and you keep reading, uh, we ignore the one that has come. We ignore the prophets that come and say, uh, repent and turn and go back to God. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to listen to it. We want to go our own way. And so we don't look for a redeemer. We don't feel like we need a redeemer because of our transgressions, because of the very sin that so easily entangles us so We need a reminder. Uh, We need a redeemer. We don't think we do until we realize and we feel we are in great need of one. That's to say that until we become conscious of our own sin, we realize, oh no, I'm not in right standing. I need someone to atone for that where I fall short of the glory of God. But sin, church, has clouded our eyes. It has made us insensitive to the seriousness of sin and to the gravity of sin, to the consequences of sin, to each other and to God. We, we, we often think, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. That's kind of old way of thinking. Uh, we don't really have to 
really get down into that. That's all antiquated. We're, we're more modern people now. We don't think about things like that anymore. But in God's design, he brings us something that reveals to us the very problem and reveals to us our very need of a redeemer. Otherwise, we just won't look for him and we don't look for him to open our eyes, to reveal our hearts, to show what's really in our minds. And that's why God gave us the law. Romans 3, Paul says it this way, for by the works of law, no human being will be justified. So Paul's answering the same question. So by the, so you working toward the law, no one's gonna be saved. Justified means being made right with God. So if you obey all the law and you work toward obeying the law, um, you won't be justified in his sight. Since through the law, here, now he's telling the purpose of the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So it's through the law that we see how far we've fallen short and that we realize that we have this great need for a savior for, to do that which we can never do on our own, that which we can never follow on our own, that which we can never live up to on our own. That's why the law is given. So catch it, we just sang the song. It's all about you, Jesus. The law in Exodus 20 is meant to lead us to Christ. The very purpose of the law is meant to lead us to Christ. That church is the deepest significance of the law at its deepest level. At its heart level, it is the, the reading of the law, being confronted with the law is meant to lead us to the promised one that came to fulfill all the law perfectly where we could not. That's the deepest significance. And then just like in Exodus, the law exposes our hearts and lives as sinful people. I mean, the people don't even want to get near the mountain and Moses like, you go up there and I'll stay back here, right? We're just, all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness. You're confronted with it. You don't even want to be near it. Woe is me, Isaiah would later say, when he's confronted with God and his presence. And we realize the affront that our lives and actions that don't live up to this holy God have against him. And so what happens after this? As we continue in the story, we're gonna see that shortly after God gives the law on these two tables, these two tablets, the institution of the temple, and then the sacrifices came and altars come. Why? To make atonement for sin. The law comes. We can't live up. I need to run away. No, God makes a way. The temple, sacrifice, atonement, right relationship restored that is broken because of iniquity. That's the story of Exodus, and we're going to get there in the coming weeks. And so the law brings the knowledge of our sin to bear in our hearts so that it comes home. We know that we need a way back to God. Thanks be to God that he provides the way. That's the story of Exodus, how it proceeds with the tabernacle. And he gets, so, he gets down to the details. This is how it should be structured. This is how the altar is supposed to look. This is how the temple should look. This is what it should, how it should be built. All of these things God uh, lays out in great detail. And so it is for us in the work of Christ that he would come one day and take the place of all the sacrifices that would be made in those temples. Week in and week out to atone for the sins 
uh, that so easily entangle you and I. Christ comes as our final sacrifice to bring us back into right standing with God because the law exposes our great need for a savior. But that's not the only thing that we see in the law. And that's going to be the rest of the sermon. We see these Ten Commandments as a way of directing the lives of believers. So at their deepest meaning, they're meant to have us run to Jesus. As the atoning sacrifice that pays for all all of our shortcomings. That we can now be in right relationship with God. But they also show us how we are to relate to God and honor him and how we are to relate to one another. So they have a, uh, a vertical meaning, and that's the first four commandments that were given. And they have a horizontal meaning, and that's the rest of the commandments to each other. How we're to live in harmony and peace with one another. But it first starts with the God word life, you relating to God. How do you honor God? And then the, the next tablets are the ones of how we honor and relate to each other. The first is Godward, and the second is people-focused. This is exactly how Jesus structures the Lord's Prayer. It's structured just like the Ten Commandments. Matthew 6, uh, 9 through 12, I believe. I, I'm not sure if it will all be on the screen, but it says this. When he's teaching us how to pray, teaching us how to relate to God and each other. He says, Jesus, our Lord, says, pray like this, friends. Pray like this. Church, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's saying, this is who you are, God. This is my vertical relationship to you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, God, on earth as it is in heaven. Godward focused. This is what he's done. This is who he is. He is holy. He is set apart. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Godward focused, just like the first four commandments. And then he goes on to talk about how that reality, that vertical relationship with God, now bleeds over into our horizontal relationships with one another. He says, what does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. Because this is who you are, because this is who I believe you are, t- you are going to be for me forever, your kingdom come. Now, t- this is what I need you to do here. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Help me here, God. Help me interact here with my fellow man. The Lord's prayer is structured just like the Ten Commandments. And I think we're meant to learn from this order. It's given to us in Exodus 20. Jesus himself models this very same pattern. First, Godward followed by one another. What do I mean? I think, I think there's something here that's helpful, meaning that um, when you seek to honor God, when you seek to honor the name of the Lord and all that you do, when you seek to honor the Lord's day, when you seek to um, worship him above all other things that come uh, barreling down into our lives, when you, uh, when you seek that first and foremost, a Godward-centered life, my life is going to be, um, I have no other gods before you. Um, I'm gonna keep your day I think the the commandments that are then directed at one another become all that much more easier to live in because we've li- we're, we're already living a life that is Godward focused. And that life that is being fueled by God and his ways then spills out into our everyday realities. So 
The first four commandments center us on a person rightly relating to God, and therefore we can then rightly relate to one another. All right, let's look at verse 4. As we already looked at the first commandment last week, if you missed it, uh, you can listen to 35 minutes on the first commandment. And here we're going to have about the rest of our time on the rest of them. So remember, always though, through this, grace came first, then the law. The law doesn't save you. God gives you the law because he already has loved you and set his love upon you, all right? These are a response to our salvation. The law is a response to God's saving work in our life. Exodus 24 and 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. Now, this commandment is clearly sort of in line with the first one. You shall have no other gods before me, right? He kind of, he's, he's further explaining um, the ramifications of this or what this is to look like. And so here, what's forbidden in worship is the, the use in worship of anything under the sun under the water or on the earth that distracts from the the fundamental reality that expresses the Lord's words in John 4.24. What do I mean? John 4.24 says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. John's gospel is getting at this. So no, what, what, is, what is the commandment saying? No representation of God is suitable for your worship because a representation can only approximate all of who he really is. Can we make nice paintings that display and reflect the beauty of God? Yes. Should you bow down and worship them? No. Um. He's saying nothing is like God. He is unique. He is spirit. He is spirit and truth. You shall not uh, make for yourself anything that would distract from all of who he is. God alone is Lord. He alone is unique and nothing made with human hands can represent him in our worship. People, this may sound like a no-brainer, but I hate to break it to us. We are so prone to worship things that are made by human hands. That's just in all of us. We may read these stories because we're gonna read about God's people and they're gonna make golden images and they're gonna bow down and worship after all that God has done. And we're gonna think, what foolishness. Do not think we are too far removed from doing these types of things. I mean, there's news stories that they seem crazy, but these are happening where someone like bakes a loaf of bread and it's in the shape of Jesus's face or something and like a thousand people come and worship it. It's like on CNN, you're like, what? Like this happens. Like, or there's like a water stain, but it's the shroud of Christ. And now all the, like it's in some random place and they make a temple. We just are, we're longing and looking for something to give our worship to. 
And it feels even better if it kind of lines up and looks a little bit like we might think Jesus might look like or something that may be good that we can bow down and worship to. This stuff happens. I mean, we could go, what's in the last week? Our lives are full of little idols and little lords that we bow down to. We are not so far removed from this. Jesus tells us the way that we are to see God. And it's not through uh, crafting some thing to give him likeness that we would set here to give our worship to or finding some um, random thing that kind of looks like Jesus and we're gonna travel and go worship it. Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's how you see God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart for then you will see God. See, God knows that we are prone to worship things that are created rather than the creator. That's why this commandment is here. Because we all understand that. We all know what that's like. We all feel that pull. Um, but he gives us in his word those things that lead us into worship. Rather than images created by man, he appoints his means of grace through his written word that he gives to us that reveals who he is and what he's like. The worship of him through song, uh, through hymns and spiritual songs that we're told about in his word, through the sacraments, the, the Lord's Supper, and through the fellowship of believers. And then we read, for I, am the, for I am the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. I believe this is speaking about the connection that all of us have to each other. Um, this is a hard one. This is, I wish I could spend an hour on this, but I believe this is talking about the interconnectedness that we all have and how your decisions right now to walk in a manner worthy of Christ in this life that he's called you to, to try to live out these 10 commandments, which are good, that are given to us in his word. If you choose not to do that and you choose to um, live a life of wayward sin and running from God, there are generational ramifications of the sins that you and I commit that trickle down into the lives of our children and their children and their children. Um, that's sobering. But there is also, so that says from the third and fourth generations. So our, our um, walking in a way that honors the Lord, if we choose not to and run headlong the other way and run away from him, those sinful impacts that we often think it's just a, it's just me. It only affects me. I'm not hurting anyone else. That's wrong. It hurts generations underneath you and has ramifications that we may not fully understand and realize to the third and fourth generation. But on the flip side, we see generational grace in the mercy of God for those that walk in accordance to the way that God has called us to 
that love the Lord, that want to honor him and want to run headlong after him and want to train up our children in grace and love and mercy and show them the way and show them the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that doesn't just stop to the third and fourth generation. It says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, it just keeps going. So there's a whole sermon here. Um, parents of children, um, those who interact with children, maybe you don't have children. We have like 150 of them back there that are learning the gospel and hearing the good news of Jesus. So as we interact with them, the way in which we follow the Lord and the way in which we pour into them um, or don't and run headlong the other way impacts the generations beneath us in profound ways, in ways that we do not realize unless confronted with the very word of God. Because we just think, that's oh, just my life and it's about me. I'm not hurting anyone. Contrary to what the Bible just tells us. Parents, side note, soapbox, it is your job to disciple and love your kids in the love of Jesus. They are your first disciples. It is not the church's job to do all of this for you. We are a help. We are a community of believers meant to lock arms together so that you don't feel like you're doing it alone, but is not an outsourcing technique for spirituality. That happens in the home. If you have, do not have a plan to raise up your children in the goodness and the grace of the gospel, talk to us. We want to help you in that. We want to help you in that. We have an hour a week. You get them all week, okay? Off the soapbox. Next commandment, verse seven. Isn't this great and happy? This is okay. Here we go. It gets better. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I'm going to knock this thing over, Zach. I'm so sorry. I'm going to move it like that. So it keeps nailing me. It's, just, it's a thorn in my side, literally. Okay. Pastor joke. Here we go. Uh, you shall not take the, nor the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is speaking of the wrongful use of the divine name of God. Um, and it's specifically talking, most believe, in the context of making oaths or swearing by or uh, contractual obligations even. Um, Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount by telling us not to swear falsely. Why? What's the big deal here? This, you're like, this seems antiquated. But to invoke the name of God brings in the character of God and that one which you're dealing with. So to speak the name of God or speak the name of Jesus, to invoke his name, you are drawing in the very character and person of God in that which you are speaking about. We all have a very casual way of, um, of communicating even about the things of God. Uh, so I think this could, I, I mean, the Jesus is my homeboy or whatever it, you know, there's all these things where we speak sort of cavalier and it's sort of funny or it's tongue in cheek. I, I don't know that those really honor him in the way that we would talk about him and the way that we want him to be seen and heard and revered and honored in our lives by sort of making him some casual quippy statement. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And then when you're dealing with people, don't try to get ahead 
by bringing the Lord's character into it unless you really are going to be dealing in a way that your character lines up with the character of God. Don't use it as a marketing ploy. Make sure we don't take his name on our lips in an unworthy manner. Another way of looking at this is the way that we, I I talked about a little bit, engage in even religious jargon. This is the Bible Belt South. We pepper in uh, Jesus take the wheel and bless his heart language like all over the place. It's sweet and sappy, but it means the very opposite oftentimes. Bless his heart is like, in, like the worst insult a southerner can give someone, I think, right? It's like, oh, bless his heart. That just means like, don't bless his heart and I hope you don't have a blessed day. It's like, what? It's like, so even in the way that we're using like the blessing of God or neat country songs that are catchy, it's like, don't like, just be mindful, like be honoring of the Lord. Because when you take his name on your lips, you're invoking his character and who he is and what you believe about him. And if you're cavalier about it and you're just casual about it and you're just like, Jesus, take the wheel over here and Lord, I hope I get the good parking spot at, at Dillard's today. You're just like, what, really? Like, he's like, I don't know. Be more, I, yeah, that's me. Um, so just be careful. We'll take the, it's easy to take the Lord's name in vain. He's telling us, just watch out. Don't be careless about um, using the Lord's name, honor and give him reverence because he is deserving of it. He's deserving of it. Um, the fourth Godward commandment, um, Exodus 20, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now this one is interesting. Uh, the scriptures give far more prominence about the Sabbath commandment than almost any of the others. Like if you just take the entire canon of scripture, the Sabbath is talked about a lot. Jesus talks about the Sabbath a lot. The prophets will read about breaking the Sabbath and how it's a particularly important manner in the sight of God. Um, And I think this is particularly important for us as a culture. Why? Because we tend to not protect any day. We read, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And I bet this is what a lot of us think just default. Oh, that's the Old Testament. That's the Ten Commandments. We're under the new covenant in Jesus. And so we don't have to do that anymore because Jesus is everywhere and we can worship him anywhere and remember him anywhere. So this is, we, we sort of explain it away very easily in our culture. Um, but this is, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Like the whole Bible speaks about this idea of Sabbath. Why is this so important? Because the Sabbath represents God. The Sabbath day and worshiping on the Sabbath day is the indication and the tangible outworking and showing that all days belong to God and that you trust him for all of your other days. So how we observe this matters. So to honor the Sabbath is to not depart from God and his word. But a lot of us are like, well, there's things to get done. 
and that really doesn't matter. I'm in charge. I get to do my own scheduling. Uh, we live in a culture that Sabbath is just like any other day. We don't even think about it. It's not even part of our headspace of how we talk about as believers of honoring the Lord and what the ramifications of that are in our lives. Um, we feel like because we're in the new covenant, it doesn't apply to us anymore. But I believe that idea is largely false. Uh, why do I say that? Because I'm the pastor and I like for everyone to be at church on Sunday. Partly, yes, uh, that's fleshly. But do I believe it's biblical to obey the Sabbath even into the New Testament? Yes. The concept of Sabbath finds its origin in the order of creation in Genesis chapter two, church. And if you believe all of the things in Genesis chapter two that give us our origin story that are vital to human flourishing and human existence today, then you also need to hold the Sabbath with just as much fondness and just as much um, delight. What do I mean? Where do we, un how, what, what does Genesis two in our origin story tell us about and give us foundational understanding of? Marriage. The institution of marriage, the institution of gender and what gender means, that God made male and female. He uniquely created them that way on purpose for his glory and their good. And he gives them in holy marriage together the, the, uh, the understanding of work that God has created us as a people of work. And also in that is the institution of Sabbath rest. These are, like, those are all lumped in these very foundational understandings of what it means to live and flourish as humanity. Marriage, gender, identity, who we are in the Lord, how he's made us, how he's created us to work and operate in the world, and how he's created us to rest and give a day to the Lord that is holy and set apart. To say that all other days are his in his created order. I'm gonna soapbox on Sabbath a little bit longer. We'll go quicker on these back end because I'm running out of time. But I think it's worth it because I think so many of us just don't even think about this. Um, so in, in Genesis, we're given Sabbath, marriage, gender, all of these things that are foundational. And is it true that you can have a legalistic understanding of Sabbath? Yes. Jesus called the Pharisees out for that. Those are ones that, those probably come to mind regularly, right? Like, yes, you can have a legalistic understanding of all of the Ten Commandments. But that, does that say, does that, does that give us, like, that's not intellectually honest to say, well, you can be a legalist about the Sabbath, so forget it. Like, what about thou shalt not commit adultery? Oh, you can be so legalistic about that one. Look, let's loosen up a little bit here. We would never say that. But why do we do that about the Sabbath? Because it interferes with our time and our schedule and what we got to get done. Uh, and we don't like that. We would never charge anyone as being a legalist by trying to live in accordance with the law of God and being honest in your dealings with other people and being honorable in all the things that you do with other people when it says, thou shall not steal. What a legalist. Just trying to be honest and like tell the truth in our dealings with each other. 
get out of here. We, we would never think that. We would never charge someone of being a legalist, of trying to live a life of purity with the Lord and trying to honor the Lord and what he's called us to do with our bodies and with our minds and with our eyes. And we look at them and say, what a legalist. I can't believe they're trying to take seriously this whole do not commit adultery and, and actually live it out with how Jesus tells us what those things mean, even in the New Testament. Why then do we, when we speak of honoring the Sabbath day that is in here, do we talk about it in such a way that like, oh, you're just being legalistic about that when you're trying to obey that one? Obedience to the Sabbath is a reality given to us in the scripture. It's just gone really out of fashion in today's culture. In fact, I'm gonna say this, and this, this one, this hurts me. This is, this is something the Lord's shown me. So I'm not calling anyone else out, but I believe that we can really find where our idols are lurking in the places that we so easily break the Sabbath commandment. Well, I got work to do. Well, I got this going on. Well, I can't just rest and worship the Lord because. What is that? And in those things and in those places, I think we find our idols lurking. And that is convicting. Uh, but remember, this whole thing started off you shall have no other gods before. When we break the first commandment, it's very easy to dismiss all the other ones as legalistic, um, outdated, or that doesn't apply to me in the church age. And then I want us to, I just want us to hear this as we're, as we're finishing. Um, well, man, I didn't get close to finishing. Anyway, um, as Christians, I don't want you to hear this, that remember, these don't save you. This isn't do this or God doesn't love you. I don't, I don't try to honor the Sabbath. I don't try to honor all these, uh, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I don't try to keep those things just because the commandment says so. Okay? What do I mean there? I love to keep the Sabbath because I love to come to God's house and worship with God's people. It is out of love that we desire to obey these things because he has already saved you and he's given you a new heart and he's given you a new identity and he's given you a new mind and he's given you new affections and he's given you a heart that actually want to love the things that God loves. And these are the things that he loves and these are the things that he's calling us to run after. So we're not just obeying uh, these, these cold rules. It's actually things that when we walk in and that when we uh, operate in, we love them because it honors the Lord and we love honoring the Lord because of all that he's done for us because he's already set his love on us and he's already saved us and he's already rescued us. Um, 
Same for all of these commandments. I don't not steal and try to live an honest life because it says so in the 10 commandments. I don't do those things because God has saved me and now I do not wanna deal with my fellow man in a way that would dishonor the Lord and dishonor them by stealing from them, by taking advantage of them because God's given me a new heart. And when I am tempted to stray, And I'm tempted to think, well, what's one little cheat? What's one little look? What's one little, let's let this take the place of that. The law of God confronts my redeemed heart and brings me back into the fold. That's the purpose of the law, is that when we go astray, it's like uh, a flock of sheep. The sheepdog is at the flank, and the sheepdog walks quietly behind, watching the sheep go as they're going down into the pasture where the the shepherd is leading them. One of the sheep veer away, that sheepdog, bam, right there, brings him back into the fold to make sure he doesn't get off the path, and he's not with, with those that he needs to be with on that narrow path. That's the purpose of the law. It's like the sheepdog. When we go off stray, boom, it confronts us. And those things we feel bubble up are the conviction of the Lord that we should get back on the path that the Lord has called us to. That's the function of the law. Last verses, Exodus 20, 22 through 26. And the Lord said to Moses, this is after the Ten Commandments, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not be built out of hewn stones, for you shall wield your tool on it and profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. A couple of ending points here. There's a lot happening there that we don't have time to unpack all of it. But what it's, this is so important. What happens immediately after the giving of the law? An altar is told to be made. Immediately after God gives his people the Ten Commandments, the law of God, he instructs them to create an altar. Where what goes on at an altar sacrifices to the Lord to atone for sin. And he says, he tells them how to make it. Don't make it ornate. Don't make it with a bunch of gold because you're going to be tempted to worship the altar and not me. Just make it simple out of earth an altar of earth. And upon this altar of worship to the living God is where you will sacrifice and atone for your sin where you don't measure up to the law that I've just given to you. God knew in his perfect plan that we're lawbreakers, that we don't measure up, that we can't get it right. Then we're gonna stumble and fall before a holy living God. But God and his mercy has always provided a way to atone for their sin. This is undeniable in the Bible. It is a mega theme in our Bible. 
He did so in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. He provided a sacrifice, atoned for their sin of rebellion that started this whole thing and gave to them the sacrifice that they needed to be back in right relationship with God. He makes, he calls and gives an altar after the great flood of Noah. The world had been judged for its wickedness, but Noah was saved. And when he stepped foot on dry ground, God told him, build an altar, sacrifice to me. Moses built altars. David built altars. This was always an altar where God's people would make atonement for sin. And all of these, just like we talked about at the very beginning, all of these things, all of these altars, all of these sacrifices for where we don't live up to the word of God and the law of God, point us, point us once and for all to prepare us for Jesus who came as the ultimate and full fulfillment of that which we could not do, the final atonement for our sins, the final price paid on the back of Jesus so that you and I could be counted as sons and daughters. Romans 3, 23 and 26 explain this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood. There's the atonement. To be received by faith. We receive him. Receive him today, church, by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your 10 commandments. God, thank you that they are um, in place to reveal to us our sin and where we've fallen, but thanks be to God that Jesus has come as our great redeemer and rescuer that fulfilled the law where we could not. Thank you that you don't require adherence to the law to save us, but you first and first set your love on us. And then out of that great love and out of the place where you've given us a new heart and a new mind, you make us a people who long to actually obey your law because it is a law of love. And when we walk in it, God, it gives us right standing and right understanding of who you are, and it gives us an understanding of how to deal with one another. Lord, I pray that we would all, as your children, walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and that you would help us, and that when we go off path, you would use your law to convict our hearts to come back into the fold so that we can walk the road that you have called us to walk in obedience, yet always giving us more and more grace. In Jesus' name.